How should this episode of How Sound start? Uh, how should this episode start? I'm thinking. Oh, God. I feel like if I can't get the beginning to a place that's satisfactory, I don't know what to do next. Totally. Like, I can't keep writing. Ah, uh, yes. That chorus of yeses is from Annie Minoff and Ella Fetter. Annie's a little bit in the left channel, Ella in the right. They're the producers and hosts of Undiscovered, the podcast from Science Friday. It almost feels like I'm trying to open a stuck door. Yeah. yeah. And I have to slam my shoulder into the stuck door. And finally, once it opens, I go running into the next room. Yeah. I don't know why it is but when i if if, even if i know there's this this has to happen in the middle of the episode so why don't i just work on that set the you know beginning aside for a bit i I can't work on the middle parts with this feeling nagging me (laughs) that the beginning is not working because it feels like without a beginning there is no episode annie and ella tend to resolve the challenge of how to start a story with one tool in particular what's the tool Exactly that. A question. They write a story opening so that it leads to what they call an animating question, a question the story will answer. Most of the time, they use this technique to good effect, really good effect. But I have some questions about their questions. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. Rob Rosenthal here. I'm the host for How Sound from PRX and Transom. And I just want to take a moment to say thanks for all the kind words I hear from listeners. Many, many producers, new and old, tell me that How Sound provides a lot of inspiration. The show is sometimes a good reminder of the fundamentals. Other times, How Sound introduces a new approach to some facet of storytelling. Either way, I'm really glad How Sound continues to be helpful. Okay, back to Annie and Ella, the producers of Undiscovered, a podcast about the backstory to science, how things are discovered, how science impacts society. It's a great podcast, and the stories, I find the stories really fresh and intriguing. But before I get too much further into my chat with them, let's listen to the lead of one of their episodes. This one is called Born This Gay. Listen for the questions they pose at the end. I'm Annie. And I'm Ella. And this is Undiscovered a podcast about the backstories of science. So I'm about to tell my mom. I'm excited and nervous. I mean, I'm already sure that she like knows. Annie, I've been making you watch a lot of these videos. Yeah, it's been kind of heavy. So what we're watching is that this kid, he's talking into the camera, uh, and he's really nervous because he's about to come out to his mother. Are we recording this? Yes. He invites her into the bedroom, they take a seat on the bed, and then he tells her. Yeah, I like guys. Okay. So these coming out videos, it's kind of a thing on YouTube, as it turns out. Kids recording themselves as they come out to their friends or family. Hi, Nanny. Hey, darling. How are you? Most of the time in these videos, the family takes it in stride, like Chrissy's grandma. You know, Bria, she and I... I think you know, but we're together. We're in a relationship. Yeah. And I'm gay. All right. Is she? Her grandma just asked if her girlfriend is gay, too. And Chrissy's got this huge smile on her face now, like she's trying not to laugh. Well, yeah, she is. We've been together in a relationship for three and a half years. Well, all right. That's not going to kill me. All right, that's not going to kill me. Perfect response. And a lot of these conversations, they end in hugs. Parents tell their kids they love them no matter what, want them to be happy. 
But in some videos, especially if the conversation isn't going well or the kid seems really nervous, they'll start to explain this wasn't a choice. I have not made a choice. I have been from the moment I come out of my mother's uterus, I have been that way. Probably long before I come out of her no. uterus. Yes. I probably said something like this when I came out to my parents uh, without mentioning my mom's uterus. However you put it, though, the idea that people are born gay or bisexual or transgender, it's pervasive. It's basically our anthem. And while the sense that this isn't a choice really lines up with my experience and so many people's, Where did this idea come from that being gay is something you're born with? Because in the early days of the gay rights movement, the turn of the 20th century, this was far from consensus. In fact, some early activists, they really resented the idea that they were somehow biologically different from other people. They found it offensive. Today's episode, we go back to pre-Nazi Germany. We'll tell you the story of a doctor named Magnus Hirschfeld. Magnus Hirschfeld was one of the first people to try to prove scientifically that people's sexual orientations are rooted in their biology. Something he thought could lead to greater acceptance. But is this the best approach? Could it actually hurt gay people? Because eventually, the wrong people do take notice of Magnus's research. And this idea that sexual orientation is hardwired, it has consequences he never intended. That's coming up on Undiscovered. There are eight episodes of Undiscovered, and this is typically how each episode starts. There's an anecdote that drives to a question, an overarching question that telegraphs to the listener what the show is about. I think we've even started thinking about the beginning as its own, sometimes we call it a story lit. Like, it's almost its own uh, mini mini episode. episode. And so you tell that story, usually it ends with some kind of thematic question or some kind of promise that we're going to try real hard to deliver on in the rest of the episode. You know, this is the question we're going to explore or something like that. Why is that important? It it propels the story forward. So if somebody has a question on their mind that they, you know, they've been promised an answer to, they'll they'll keep listening through, you know, we have, uh, tell them about, tell Rob about Meteorite Hunter. Yeah. So so this is kind of a weird beginning. Um, It's the beginning to our second episode, The Meteorite Hunter. And that episode is really... If I were going to describe like the, the content of the episode, it is hanging out in Antarctica with a young scientist as she learns what it takes to do scientific work and survive in one of the coldest, you know, most isolated environments on Earth. And in terms of a plot, there isn't much of one. It's really hanging out in an extreme place and feeling what it's like to be in that place. And I feel like that's the kind of story that's really hard to sell in the beginning, um, because how do you say in a compelling way, like, and for the next half hour, we're going to hang out on the ice with scientists. Stay tuned. It's not that grabby. And so with that episode, we we kind of had a problem to solve there of, like, what's the question that's going to propel us and make us want to hang out? And the one we hit on was one that some uh, several of the scientists on the trip had had kind of brought up to me, which is there were a few rocks that they collected on this expedition to find meteorites in Antarctica um, that 
they really want to know the identity of these rocks. They seemed like they could be potentially very exciting samples. Um, one of them seemed like maybe it could be from Mars. And so in the beginning of that episode, the question we ask isn't, <laughs> you know, a big philosophical question. It's, here's a rock. Is it from Mars? <laughs> Yeah. doesn't have to be the most profound question, but I think asking some question is important. I'm Ella. And I'm Annie. And you're listening to Undiscovered, a podcast about the backstories of science. So Ella, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I found as a science reporter, I'm always hearing about these jobs, like these jobs that I never thought could be a job that someone could have. Right. And then you immediately want that job. And I immediately want that job. Mm -hmm. And that was my first thought when I met Nina. My name is Nina Lanza, and I'm a staff scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. I work on a spaceship with lasers on Mars. Nina works on NASA's Curiosity Mars rover. So it turns out Curiosity has a laser on its head. And Nina's job is to shoot this laser at rocks on Mars to figure out what they're made of. So her Twitter bio is actually, I shoot the lasers, pew, pew, which is very charming. Yes. Anyway, normally Nina's sitting at her desk in Los Alamos and she's remotely controlling this laser. So the rocks that she's shooting at, they're millions of miles away. She's never going to touch them. But there are some Mars rocks here on Earth that you can pick up. Actual chunks of Mars that fell to Earth as meteorites. There's about a hundred of them, actually. And in December of 2015, Nina was searching for those meteorites in Antarctica. And while she was out on the ice, she and some scientists, they scooped up a rock. A weird one. So to the untrained eye, this probably wouldn't look like anything. No. It was about five pounds, dark gray on the outside. Its field number? 23042. And now it's nine months later, Nina's back home in Los Alamos. And she's still wondering, is 23042 a little chunk of the red planet. Which is why she's on the phone with Cindy Evans. Hey, Nina. Cindy works at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, in a lab that does essentially space rock CSI. So Mystery Rock 23042, it's actually sitting on Cindy's desk right now in a Teflon bag. So it's pretty big. It's probably twice the size of my fist. You're going to hear the bag crunching if, as I turn it over. So today on Undiscovered, we're going to follow the journey of that rock, 23042, from an ice sheet in Antarctica to Cindy's desk in Houston. And we're going to get to know the rookie explorer who helped pick up that rock, Nina Lanza, as she battles one of the coldest, starkest, most isolated environments on Earth. And we're going to answer the big question, is 23042 a little piece of Mars? So for all the beginnings of uh, the eight episodes, this was the one that grabbed me the least. The Oh, the rock? Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to harsh or mellow, but, no, uh, no. you know, I just figured the answer was yes. Is this rock from Mars? And I just sort of assumed, well, yeah, it is from Mars. And uh, I wasn't like, like, there wasn't enough of a pull. Yeah, yeah for me to want to go on the journey of discovery to something that I assumed you were going to find out was from Mars. Oh, wow. Were you surprised then? Well, then, no. Really? When we get to the end and we find out that it's not from Mars, I felt cheated. Oh, no. Yeah, we got some 
angry feedback from friends. Um, <laughs> wow. So I mean, talk to me it, about the idea of setting up a story with a question where the answer is not what you suggest it might be. And I don't know that you actually suggested or, or nodded or, or um, what's the word I'm looking for? You gave any tells. That, no. Yeah, this is you didn't at all, and so perhaps None. that's all on me then, and the problems <laughs> with me as the listener. But I was just like, oh man, you know, it's just some basalt. Yeah, I think that that opening really reflects what I heard from the scientists on that trip. It was like this cautious optimism, this this knowing that like, oh, it's probably not, but maybe it is, and and that would be really exciting if that were true. Um, and then what happens at the end is, of course, uh, the rock isn't from Mars. But there's also a few more rocks that they picked up that are very interesting in their own ways. Um, rocks from the asteroid Vesta, uh, rocks, uh, carbonaceous chondrites. I mean, these are rocks that, um, you know, carbon, that, that's the basis of life. I mean, these are, these are exciting finds. They're not the find you thought you were going to get or that apparently I, I misled you at the beginning <laughs> to think you would get. But there is, it's not just like, oh, oh, the rock isn't from Mars. Okay, everyone go home. Like, I think at the end of that piece, you hear Nina's excitement about these other finds. And I think that's pretty true to what science is like. You don't always find what you think you're going to find, but maybe you find something else. And I don't think I actually reckoned with the fact until you brought it up, Rob, that people would naturally assume it was from Mars. Because I don't know if I assumed that. Having been along on this 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 journey of of creating this episode, um, it was it was one of the toughest one to figure it out was. what the framing it was. would be. Uh, because it was like inherently it was an audio postcard from Antarctica. The yeah. other ones had more of a like a an actual plot that was intrinsic to the mm-hmm. to the story. This one didn't, so it was a bit of a struggle. Does it become formulaic? If each episode, the opening has an anecdote about a person and it ultimately leads to a question, are you using the same device over and over again for each episode? Yeah, I, I, do, I do wonder about that. I, I, I am interested in other ways to, to structure stories. But right now, it's not really, it's not like every time we think, okay, we need a little story and then we need a question. It, it's it, it. We keep stumbling around until we find something that works, and that seems to be the structure that has worked for us so far. I sometimes wonder if the opening to science stories are easier, maybe, because scientists are trying to answer a question. So all the reporter has <laughs> yeah. to do is establish that question at the beginning, and it's kind of like you're just cheating. You're stealing the question <laughs> from the scientist. <laughs> That's true. I mean, one interesting thing about telling a story about scientists trying to answer a question is the the project of science itself kind of has a story structure, which is, I wonder what's going to happen, you know, if I do this. Here's what I think is going to happen. Here is what actually happened. And here is what I think about it. Like in a way, doing an experiment has a kind of story arc. Then again, I don't think any of the episodes that we've made had that arc. I mean, there's a reason we don't do an episode about every study (laughs) that comes out, which is, you know, it's true. A lot of scientific findings, it's hard. It's hard in an obvious way to kind of show the relevance for most people. That doesn't mean it's not important. 
Um, but not all experiments are stories. Here's another opening. The episode is called Boss Hua and the Black Box. It's a story about a corrupt official in China and how the internet took him down. Here are the questions Ella and Annie pose to focus the story. So today on the show, we are going to bring you the story of that smiling official, Yandatsai, and the Weibo user who took him down. And we're going to try to explain how any of this happens in the first place, in a country that heavily censors the internet, where online speech is not free. Can you accuse a party official of corruption and get away with it? Like, what is okay to post and what's not okay to post on Chinese social media? The answer comes to us from some social scientists who were not even trying to answer this question. But they did, by accident, with big data. You ask a lot of questions at the beginning of this episode, like the the anecdote leads to a lot of questions. Who is this man? Uh, How was he taken down? Uh, Social media was used to take him down. Can you really use social media in a country where there's a lot of censorship? Um, And what is okay and not okay to post on social media? Like It seemed like there were a lot of questions. Can you pose too many questions? Totally. Yeah. No, yeah. you can. Chris has actually gone, gone uh, Chris, our, our senior producer, sorry, senior editor. Chris, our senior editor, has actually gone through scripts and like crossed out excessive questions. And I'm I'm with him. I on think that. we're starting to wean ourselves, but totally, it's a, it's a crutch. So I had a student a long time ago uh, who said this amazing thing. The beginning of a story is the moment of orientation. Mm-hmm. And so you're sort of setting things up so that the listener knows what compass heading the story is going to take. And if there's a dozen questions, and I'm exaggerating, of course, but if there's three or four questions and some of them head in different directions, it's hard to know exactly what direction you're headed in. The question is, where is this episode going? That is the central question. (laughs) The opening of Undiscovered I find the most compelling is Six Degrees. It explores the notion that we're all connected by six degrees. In other words, I may not know you directly, but at the most, I know someone who knows 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 you. And with so many people on the planet, that's a pretty amazing fact. We're not that far apart, if it's true, which is the question Annie and Ella seek to answer. But they argue you can't just ask a big question like that. Is it true that we're all connected by six degrees of separation? The question has to be grounded. Most of our beginnings do ask a kind of big question. And I think if you're going to try to hook someone with a big, like, philosophical idea, like, are scientists responsible for the impact their work has in the world? Like, that might be an interesting question, but... No one's going to care about it. It's kind of blah as an opening. (laughs) Right. Unless in that same opening, you can bring in a person for whom that question is relevant or an emotion, like unless you can tie it to something specific in the beginning, I don't think the question you ask uh, is enough, maybe. Yeah, we want to anchor that abstract question in somebody's specific experience um, in something that people can relate to. Oh my God, is this Stanley Milgram's writing? I think so. So a few months ago, Ella, you and I took this trip to Yale University to root around in the archives of Stanley Milgram. We did. And we had to whisper because, you know, library rules. He had really good handwriting. 
Stanley Milgram was a social scientist in the 60s and 70s. And if you know him, it's probably for some pretty memorable research that he did with a fake shock machine. Answer. Wrong. Unwrap 50 volts. Yeah, so Milgram was the guy who showed that we will totally shock strangers with what we think are 150 volts of electricity because someone in a lab coat asked us to. But not all of Milgram's experiments were quite this disturbing. Not all that dark. Relatively speaking, some of them were kind of warm and fuzzy. Like in the 60s, he got curious about how connected Americans were. So to find out, he writes a letter. Oh, here we go. All right. Uh, We are looking at the Communications Project mailing. This is what they sent out to people. And it says... We need your help with an unusual scientific study carried out. Milgram picks some random people in Kansas, sends them this kind of strange letter, and he gives them a challenge. Can they get this letter to a stranger halfway across the country? Right, and not just any stranger. Alice Mayen, former school teacher, resident of Cambridge, Massachusetts. So the catch is that they can't just send the letter to Alice. They have to send it to someone who they know personally, and, and like first name basis personally. Because the idea is you're sending it to someone who's going to help you get the letter to Alice through a chain of people. Right. So, for example, I get the letter. I send it to my former landlord. I was very surprised to hear from me. <laughs> a little out of the blue. <laughs> she sends it to her college roommate and so on, who sends it to Alice Mayen. That's one way this could happen. Your help is greatly appreciated. Sincerely, Stanley Milgram. Yeah, this, this looks like spam. June Shields in Wichita, Kansas, does not think this is spam. And she decided to send it to Augusta in New York. Who sent it to Robert? Who sent it to Meg? Sent it to Florence Monomica. McNamara. McNamara. (laughs) It looks like it took a chain of 10 people to get this particular letter to Alice. But Milgram found that a lot of the time, the chains were shorter. Across the entire experiment, he found the average number of links between two randomly selected Americans was six. Six links. Six degrees of separation. So maybe you haven't heard of Stanley Milgram. I am willing to bet you have heard of six degrees of separation. Because it's kind of become this pop culture meme. I read somewhere that everybody on this planet is separated by only six other people. Six degrees of separation. That is Stockard Channing. She's playing the Upper East Side sophisticate Weeza Kittredge in the movie Six Degrees of Separation, based on the Broadway play. There's the film Geeks game, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. There's actually a No Doubt song about this. And somewhere along the line, it's like we forgot to ask. This whole Six Degrees thing... Is it even true? I mean, are we really going to extrapolate from a few chain letters in the 1960s to the entire world's social connections? Today on the show, do we live in a six degrees world? The people who figured this out were actually two mathematicians. They cracked this problem in a world before MySpace, before LinkedIn, before Facebook. And not only did they figure this out, they created a new scientific field in the process. That's all coming up on Undiscovered. My thanks to Annie Minoff and Ella Fetter for chatting about opening questions that focus and animate a story. They told me two things recently. One, our conversation prompted them to reconsider how they open their episodes. Maybe they do lean on an opening question a bit too much, they thought. 
And two, we'll get to hear how they may change their approach late this summer when the second season of Undiscovered drops, with stories about botanists, robots, environmentalist infighting, bringing people back from the dead. In the meantime, listen to season one so you can find out the answers to all these questions. For more about producing science stories, check out the How Sound episode with science reporter Ari Daniel. Ari says he uses the acronym DSW to guide his storytelling. Drop the details, search for the story, wander in the wonder. Also on a past How Sound about science reporting, I chatted with Kerry Donahue about producing stories with scientists. Kerry was a producer for PRX's podcast, Transistor, where scientists reported on their field of interest. I put links to both at this episode of How Sound at Transom. Mr. John Barth is a radio scientist. I'm lucky to have him editing my work. Thank you, John. And thanks to WCAI. I record in one of their studios here in Woods Hole, the radio center of the universe. This is How Sound the backstory to great radio storytelling. It's produced by PRX and Transom. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening.